I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, let me just thank, publicly thank Pastor Les, uh, who has done a phenomenal job of leading our singing this, this morning. It's, it's probably a frightening thing, I don't know. I've never been asked to lead worship. I don't know what that's all about, but I think I might be the sixth or seventh string down the line. Uh, hopefully we never get to that point. I think it would take the rapture or something like that occurring for me to be up here leading worship. Uh, but it's a frightening thing maybe to get a call or text at 8 in the evening the day before, but Pastor Les did a great job of uh, leading us through worship. And then Pastor Paul, I didn't know he could sing so well. Uh, it's great to hear uh, the Lamb of God and thank, thank Pastor Paul as well uh, for stepping in there. You know you know how much you miss someone when they're gone. And that's been true with Pastor or with uh, Paul Q. It's been true as well. If my wife you may have noticed, she's not here today. Uh, she's in Minnesota uh, with my oldest daughter visiting there for her, my, my daughter's sweet 16th birthday. Uh, so they're having fun together uh, this week. But uh, last week, we started through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the title of the sermon last week was Problems, 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 because in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, Paul has three specific problems that he deals with. He, he first deals with immorality in the church, then pride or arrogance, and in chapter 6, he'll also deal with greed. And so uh, last week, we had the opportunity to look through the first four. Uh, we started into verse 5, and then we uh, ran out of time for, uh, to cover the entire chapter. But we, we began to deal with the problem of ongoing, unrepentant immorality in the church. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, uh, it says that Paul received a report that there was sexual immorality among you, the Corinthians, and of a kind that is not even tolerated uh, among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So last week, we began to answer questions about how Paul counsels the church to deal with this man who's involved in ongoing immorality with his stepmother. And we introduced the concept to you that what Paul appeals to here is a form of church discipline or church removal to deal with this person. And uh, we began answering questions. Uh, the first question that verse 1 helps us with is, what sins demand church discipline? In this text, we saw ongoing, unrepented immorality as being one of those sins. I then introduced you to several other New Testament texts, just very briefly, which help answer that question. What sins demand discipline? Um, then, after that, we, we got into verse 2, and from verse 2 through Verse 5a, Paul is answering another question. And the question that he deals with here is, what procedures should we follow? What should be our method in dealing with someone who's insisting on these sort of sins? And we got right to the place in verse 5 where Paul begins to answer the question, how? How to deal with this person? So let's look in our Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll read verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that 
his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And really still under that second question of what procedures should we use, Paul begins to instruct them regarding how they should do this. They're to deliver this man over to Satan. That's what the first part of verse 5 says. When you're gathered together at a public meeting, deliver this man to Satan. Okay, so the first question we need to deal with is what does Paul mean when he says, deliver this unrepentant man over to Satan? What is the realm or the custody of Satan? Uh, Let me give you just a few texts that you could write down and research this week. One of the most profitable studies I've engaged in the last five years would be to, was looking through the New Testament to see what sort of power Satan might have over a believer. Okay, there are things Satan can and cannot do to a believer, and it would be very important, I think, for you sometime to study the New Testament to look for the devices of Satan. How does he work? How does he influence us? Within the Corinthian epistles themselves, there are four references you could write down. First of all, you could write down 2 Corinthians 12, 7. One of the things that Satan can do by permission from God in some cases is to uh, physically influence a believer. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul talks about a thorn of flesh a thorn in the flesh that he had. We don't know exactly what this painful physical problem was for Paul. It may be something related to his vision. There there are texts you could go to in Galatians where you might be able to make that connection. But regardless, Paul says that he had this thorn in the flesh, and then he describes it right after that in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, by saying that it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Remember that passage? That's how he describes his physical problems. So in some cases, perhaps by permission from God, Satan can have some ability to physically uh, influence a believer. You could write down 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, where Paul gives counsel to men and women who are married not to refrain from intimacy without mutual consent, because he says, you don't want to set up your spouse for failure or the temptation of Satan. He says, uh, you don't refrain like this for, for ongoing fashion, lest Satan get a rule over him. Okay, so one of the things he can do is he can tempt us to sin. That's one of the things Satan does to believers. He tempts us to sin. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. You could write down this reference and study it this week. Just in the Corinthian epistles themselves, you can see that Satan doesn't sit back. Satan has things that he's doing to try to get believers to stumble or to become discouraged. And 2 Corinthians 11, 
14 and 15 says that Satan sends undercover agents into the church to deceive them. They are clothed as ministers of light, but they're not legitimate or real. They're instruments in the hands of Satan to distract and destroy the church. We cannot assume that Satan would be above this either for Colonial Baptist Church. One last text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. There I see Satan using uh, an unforgiving spirit in the church to discourage believers. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul gives counsel to the church at Corinth who had disciplined a person publicly to forgive the person because they've been repentant. He says, you must forgive him because we don't want Satan to get an advantage over him. We don't want him to be greatly discouraged. Paul says, I've forgiven him, so you should embrace and forgive him too so that Satan won't have an advantage in his life. So Satan can attempt to discourage believers as well. And so you go throughout the Corinthian epistles and you see all these different ways that Satan can influence believers. But I want to suggest that delivering this person to Satan is something even perhaps more significant than these things. What, is, what does Paul mean when he says that we are to, at a public gathering, deliver someone to Satan? I mean, if you don't like that, I didn't create it. Okay, this is Paul the Apostle writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. I think what he means is we are to remove the professing believer and deliver him back into Satan's sphere of influence. That is, we are to remove him or her from the protection and the encouragement found in the church of Christ and deliver him into the world where Satan rules. Is this a frightening thing for us? The worst parts of church discipline is that we are being delivered over to Satan. His place, his role, out from underneath of the encouragement and the protection found in the church of Jesus Christ. By God's good grace, may we never have to do this, right? But of course, if we're going to follow the scripture, there'll come times where we have to do this. But I think we can learn even more of what what it means to deliver someone to Satan by the very next phrase in verse 5. So down in your Bible again at verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And so then we've got to stop again. What is the destruction of the flesh? And that's, if you've got a handout today and you flip it over, you've got a gray box where I've summarized the main views or ideas. And I'm not going to get into them in in a great fashion. Hopefully that box helps you. There are really two major ways we could go here and what, what does the destruction of the flesh mean? Some people believe that, as the top of that box says, that it is the destruction of his flesh and that the flesh that Paul is talking about here would be the fleshly impulses of the offending believer. Uh, The word flesh can be used in this way. Back in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, it talked about 
the fleshliness of the church. You're full of divisions and strife. Are you not fleshly? And he uses the same word there. Okay. So one of the things that Paul might mean here when he says, deliver the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it might be the destruction of his fleshly nature or his sinful inclinations to do what is wrong. So we remove him so that Satan does his thing and this person's uh, carnality or fleshliness is taken away. The, the view right underneath it is very similar, but uh, it, it says, well, maybe it's not his flesh, whereas there's no pronoun in the original here, but it could be the flesh. Then it would be the fleshly impulses of the church. Okay, so to deliver this person over to Satan so that the fleshliness of the assembly will be removed. Could be it as well. But uh, most of you are probably well acquainted with this third idea, and this is the view that I think makes the most sense in the text, and that is that we are to deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but his flesh would mean his body. It'd be roughly equivalent to his physical body. You see, the immaterial parts of human beings in the New Testament are called our soul and our spirit. The material part is our body or our flesh. And so what I think Paul is doing here is he's saying Satan will be allowed to start destroying the, the general health of the believer, perhaps mentally or physically. And it might even result eventually in death itself. So one of the things we're learning about church discipline, I mean, you know, we're committed to go verse by verse through the Bible, right? This is like not an easy text. How many of you are really enjoying this study? You know, the preacher isn't either. What we're learning here is that church discipline is not fun or easy, and we also learn that it's alarming in its intended results. Listen, men and women, we never want to be removed from a church. Because when we're removed from a church, we're put back into Satan's sphere for a purpose. And the purpose is the destruction of our flesh. That's what procedures we should follow. That leads us to a third question. It gets a little bit more positive here. Second part of verse 5 into verse 8, the third question I think he answers is, why do we get involved in this process? So the blank is get involved. Why do we get involved in this process? I mean, so far, preacher, what you've been describing, that, that sounds like no one would like to do that. So why in the world would we do something like this as an assembly other than it's commanded in the scriptures? Well, the scriptures actually give us at least two good reasons for doing it. And I see them both manifested in this text. I might point you to some other texts which might show one of these a little bit stronger than our text, but uh, there are two reasons for church discipline that are found in this text uh, in, in the New Testament here. First of all, we are to do this for the restoration of the erring believer. For their restoration. 
We want them restored in their walk with Christ. We want them to repent. That's our desire. Remember, anywhere along the way, if this erring believer repents, what do we do? We forgive, we restore, and we're thankful because it could be any one of us there. So one of the reasons we do this is for the restoration of the erring believer. I see that in the end of verse 5. This little phrase is difficult. It's a difficult little phrase, but it says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That phrase gives some sort of hope here. I think what he's saying is something like this. Satan will possess power over the person who's been disciplined, but his power will be limited. All that Satan can do to a disciplined believer is affect his physical body, the material part. He may bring about disease. He might encourage greater uh, struggles in the sin patterns that have led to this. He might uh, find ways to, uh, to enhance this professing believer's struggle in sin. He might bring about suffering of some nature, perhaps, perhaps, even death itself, but Satan cannot touch his spirit. The spirit being the immaterial part. He he cannot touch the spirit of a true believer. So it's something like this. As bad as it gets for this person, they will not lose what they have. His spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus in time of future, future judgment. So I think that this text in that phrase is speaking a type of uh, reason for doing it so that the person will be restored. Uh, there are other texts you could write down here that I think are even more clear in this purpose. Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 talks about the need for believers, those who are spiritual, to restore those who've been overcome in a failure or a fault. So as a church, we've got a a responsibility to get involved in discipline so that a person would be restored. Galatians 6.1. You can take your Bibles and just flip over. It's right here in the text. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has some things to say about how the church at Corinth should deal with someone who'd been confronted severely regarding their sin. Look at 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5. Which, by the way, before I read this, some people think that this could even be the person who's disciplined in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I don't think that that's the case, but I think you can see restoration here. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such an one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Okay, so someone had offended the Apostle Paul, the church of Corinth confronts him, punishes him publicly. So you should, verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Okay, we, we won't keep reading there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2 shows Paul's belief in the potential restoration of someone who's been confronted painfully, even. And and what is implied in that text is that the person has been repentant. And so Paul says, you know what? You need to reaffirm your love for him. You need to forgive him. 
Okay, and so we see throughout the New Testament, one of the reasons we would do church discipline is for the restoration of the erring believer. This is what we pray for from the very beginning, that God would see the person converted, uh, brought back to Christ. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 5 then for a moment again. The second reason is found in verses 6 through 8. The second reason is found in verses 6 through 8. So why do we do this? It's difficult. Why would we participate in something like this? The second reason is to protect the purity of the church of God. Look in, me, in your Bibles at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul does here is he, use, he uses an illustration or an analogy from the Old Testament. And he uses the analogy of the Passover, a time when the Jewish people would celebrate removal from Egypt. At the Passover, when they were to celebrate the Passover, the Jewish people were to remove leaven from their households. And as they would do that, uh, it would be a symbol or a sign of the removal of the corruption of sin. For in the scriptures, leaven often illustrates the contaminating or corrupting influence of sin. Leaven, it might be in your mind a little bit like yeast, right? You put a little piece of yeast in a batch of dough and what happens? Eventually, it will work its way through the whole lump of dough. And so that's the illustration here. Remove all the leaven from the batch of dough. Now in the Old Testament, if an Israelite person did not remove leaven from their house at the Passover, at the festival, they would be punished through a, a brutal scourging or a whipping. Okay. Now in the New Testament, what, what Paul is doing is he's using that analogy to say that the church must remove this sinner from the assembly to preserve and to protect what Christ had already made them to be. He said something like, Christ has made you a new batch of dough without any leaven in it. So remove this sinner from the assembly so that he doesn't continue to have this corrupting influence on the morality of the assembly. And to me, it's obvious that that had already begun to happen. Because as we transition to the next sin that Paul deals with, it's the sin of arrogance or pride. And we can see this in verse 2 and verse 6. This sin had so influenced the assembly, some in the church at Corinth were actually boasting or bragging about having a man like this in their assembly. As a matter of fact, as we transition now to number two, God's judgment on pride, I would have to disagree very strongly with, with many Bible students that would say something like, the church at Corinth was proud in spite of this one sin happening in their assembly. 
As I look in my Bible at verse two, look in your Bible at verse two, he says, and you are arrogant. It seems that he's preparing this or he's talking about the fact that the Corinthians are responding to the sin with arrogance or pride. And then you look in verse six, look at the very beginning part of verse six. Your boasting is not good. Not only are they arrogant, they're bragging not in spite of the sin, but because of it. Led me to stop several years ago and begin thinking, I mean, what type of church, what type of church would brag about having a man who's committing ongoing immorality with his stepmother, a sin that not even the pagans tolerate? What type of church would boast in that? So I came up with two possible explanations. I've spent much time thinking about this text. It may be that some in the church of Corinth felt that this was a proper demonstration of Christian love to allow this man to continue. And after all, aren't we all sinners? He's got his problem, we've got our problems, but he can still worship with us. This could be that perhaps Christian love, or, or maybe some people felt that what this man does with his own body was a proper demonstration of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. It's quite possible that some of these former pagans felt that the body, the body was just immaterial. And it doesn't really matter what we do with it. And so what this man does with his own body or the body of his stepmother, that, that really doesn't matter. I mean, even today, Christians sometimes boast and how broad-minded they are, right? It's like a, a badge. Come as you are. You know, we accept all kinds of sinners. Well, we do here too, but we don't boast in it. We don't boast in it. We don't brag about having an ongoing immoral man worshiping in our assembly. So the Corinthians here perhaps were boasting for that reason, a proper demonstration of Christian liberty. Either way, this church... What they did went beyond mere tolerance. They were not boasting in spite of the sinner. They're boasting because of him. This arrogant boasting is not good because it had begun to corrupt the church. It had be, begun to become a rallying point or a cause for some in the church to brag about. And so Paul's answer in verse 2 and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? He says, shouldn't you rather mourn because of the sin? That's a, that word mourn is a strong word. It could be translated, it is translated by some translations. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning because of this sin? Arro arrogance is never the proper response to ongoing sin. So Paul says, as he's dealing with their arrogance, should you not rather mourn? So as we work through the first part of chapter 5, we see the way that Paul deals with immorality and the way that he deals with arrogance. And then for our last 10 minutes today, I want to look at verses 9 through 13. And I want to take our time working through the passage because I think what Paul does is he gives a clarification about the way that they should respond to the immoral person. Okay, so what we're trying to learn in the text 
is all of these questions that he's answered. And one of them is, how should you treat this person? Well, in verses 9 through 13, we actually get more advice about how to treat the immoral person. Okay, and I want to walk you through these verses and this clarification uh, in some detail. Look with me in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote unto you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindlers, not even to eat with such an one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay. This part of the text, we'll really see just how messed up the church of Corinth was. It's really fun to see like other people are messed up and it's not you, right? Hopefully. Okay. But we'll see just how messed up they are because one of the things that becomes obvious here is that the Corinthians had already had a problem knowing how to treat immoral people. In verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about a letter that he wrote to the church of Corinth. It was a previous letter. It was before 1 Corinthians. We don't have this letter. It's it's not been preserved for us. It's not in our Bibles. But Paul wrote a letter to the churches of Corinth, and in that letter, a few years before he writes 1 Corinthians, He describes or talks to them about the way they should deal with immoral people, okay? If you read verses 9 and 10, you can pick that up. But that not only happened, what also happened is that some in the church of Corinth misunderstood what Paul said, and they began separating from all the immoral people in the city of Corinth. Now, why is that a problem? Yeah, because there's like a lot of immoral people in Corinth. We talked about this a little bit, but it's a very immoral city. So can you imagine this? Some people get Paul's first letter, the previous letter, and they say, okay, what we've got to do is we have no interaction at all with lost people who are immoral. That's at least how some in the church of Corinth were responding to immorality of the world or of the lost. Whereas what is going on in 1 Corinthians becomes obvious is that others, or perhaps the same ones, I don't know, were boasting and having an immoral person in the church. See how messed up this church was? They had everything wrong when it came to this. And so as we uh, get into this, there are two points of clarification that Paul makes here. First, verses 9 and 10, I think Paul is making this point. God will deal with with the immoral people of this world. Corinthians, you know what? God is going to take care of um, lost people who are immoral. The church is not responsible to judge all the immoral people of the city. God deals with the wickedness of evil people. And actually, I think, if you understand this part of the text, I think Paul actually anticipates that we would have interaction with lost people who are involved in these sort of sins. That we would would go out of our way to, to, to 
confront them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's at least strongly implied. No, no, you cannot separate from all the immoral people in the world. You know, regarding judging them, you just let God judge them. You don't have to judge them. But the second point of clarification comes in verses 11 through 13. And that is this. The church must deal with, and you've got a blank in your notes here too, must deal with disobedient believers. So you don't have a responsibility to judge all the immoral people of the city, but you must deal with disobedient believers. And that's where we pick up in verses 11 through 13. The point here is not so much that God refuses to deal with disobedient believers. He himself will deal with them, but the church has a responsibility in these sort of issues. Specifically, the text says that that they must expel or remove any person who claims to be a believer. Someone who professes to be a believer. Are you a believer? Yes, I am. Are you a member of our church? Yes, I am. And I profess to be a believer. Regardless of whether or not they actually are a believer, the church must deal with anyone who professes to be a believer and who insists on ongoing immorality, idolatry, revelry, drunkenness, or greed. That leads us in our last five minutes here to deal with the nature of the sins that he lists here. The first sin is immorality. This chapter has been all about that. And chapter 6 as well, I'll talk about a type of immorality that would demand the church's involvement and engagement in, in, in the confrontation of the sinner. We then also uh, move on to the sin of greed. He listed here in verse 11, greed. Ongoing greed is a problem in the church. Greed is the insatiable desire for possessions. This might have been easier for them to see in the first century when they shared all things in common. And it's been quite a while since I've heard of a person being removed from a church for ongoing greed, but it's in the last. And so that as well is a problem. The church is responsible to deal with the sinner. Uh, Then the problem of idolatry, the sin of idolatry. Um, Many of these believers were saved out of idolatry, worshiping objects as God. It might be difficult for us as Westerners to really understand and to understand the grip that idolatry had on this culture, but it was a sin if someone insisted on worshiping God and worshiping false idols at the same time and they wouldn't repent of it, the church must remove that sort of person. He then goes on to the sin of revelry, which could be translated slander, a slanderer, This idea is one who is highly abusive in speech. He's ruthless in his speaking. That sort of sin can be devastating to a church as well. So revelry or being a slanderer, being abusive in the way you would treat other people with your mouth is one of the sins that's a problem here. The sin of drunkenness. Drunkenness. Believers should never be known for being drunkards. And to be absolutely clear here, the, the text here is not against drinking per se, but against anyone who becomes intoxicated. And there are all sorts of theological 
and logical reasons that you could give, reasons right from the scripture as to why a believer should never get drunk. I think of some in Ephesians, for instance. In Ephesians, it says that we should not get drunk because it's a command. Be not drunk with wine. Wherein is debauchery? It's a command right in the scriptures. We should never be drunk. Another reason we should never be drunk is because when we're drunk, we're not under the full control of the Spirit of God. But be filled with the Spirit. That's how Paul answers that in Ephesians 5. There there are reasons why believers should never be drunk. And one of them is this text right here. One of the reasons you should never get drunk drunk is because drunkenness done in an ongoing fashion where there's no repentance leads to the removal, removal of the professing believer. Sixth sin in the list is swindling. Speaks of a thief or robber. It, It probably speaks of taking someone's things by force or trickery. We should never swindle people's property or things away from them. And you see all of these sins, okay, we we dealt with them quickly. But to close here, I also want you to see the nature of the treatment that they were to incorporate. I I appreciate you you following along. This is, I warned you last week, right? Heavy teaching of Scripture. But it's very important. And so what I want to point out are just a few of the ways that Paul counsels them to deal with any of these people who are involved in these sins in ongoing fashion in their assembly. So he gives three statements here. First of all, we are not to associate with them. Not to associate with them. I'm writing verses 11 through 13 in your Bible. The phrase, do not associate with them, means do not mix yourselves up with them, with these sort of disobedient believers. This means that we are not to mingle with them, or to use modern English, we're not to hang out with them. We're not mixing together with them. Notice Paul says that we are not to mix with professing believers who commit these sins, but we are to do this with unbelievers who commit these sort of sins. We must mingle with sinners of this world, but if these sinners claim to be believers and are disciplined, then we must no longer hang out with them. Do not associate with them. Second text, he's bringing clarification. Well, what do you mean by do not associate with them? Do not mingle with them. He says, do not even eat with them. You see that in your Bible? Do not even eat with them. Many scholars believe that this admonition has to deal with religious ceremonies alone. So, don't partake in the Lord's table together. Don't, don't, don't let them partake in the Lord's table. Or, don't let them engage in, you know, your feast where you're gathered together eating like a, a potluck or something. Although we call it pot blessing, right, in Baptist circles. Don't believe in luck, I guess. Okay, so maybe they shouldn't be there. Uh, a, a whole generation, new generation of, of scholars say, no, it's not that. It's, he says, don't eat with them. So uh, where a lot of newer scholars are going, they're saying it means any meal. Could mean any meal, or perhaps a mediating position is, is possible. And this is what I would hold, that it's not allowing them to eat at your church fellowships, the Lord's table, and perhaps also some sort of social meal. 
or communal meal together. But the ban here must at least be placed on official meals of fellowship or worship within the church. That is the bare minimum. The bare minimum minimum for us. And then finally, verse 13, he gives this last charge. Purge the evil person from among you. We're basically out of time today, but what I want to say about this phrase is this phrase is used six times in the Old Testament, word for word. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And so what Paul does here is he says, uh, we need to follow what the law says about removing or expelling evil people from the assembly. The word purge that's used here is only used here in the New Testament, which I think is, means Paul's got the law in his mind. And so Paul's idea of purging here is that they would remove the person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. As we worked our way through the text, I think what you see in this passage is that Paul demands a severe break in the assembly from anyone who would do this. Our treatment is difficult. It's clear, though, what we should do. And so I'd like to ask us to close in a word of prayer. And I'll ask the Lord for the grace and the strength and the courage to work through these sort of issues. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this text of Scripture. It's a difficult text. There's much to it. But Lord, as we take a step away and we consider its importance for our church, Lord, we would pray first of all that you would protect our church and believers, brothers and sisters here from committing these sort of sins in an ongoing fashion. Lord, may we be a church, may we be individuals that are quick to repent or to turn, to admit our faults, to ask for grace and strength to to be forgiven and to turn a different direction. So, Father, first of all, we would pray that you would protect Colonial Baptist Church from these sort of things. Secondly, Father, we'd pray that you would bring us repentance. Lord, when and if these sort of things actually are occurring in our assembly, we would pray that through the power of the Spirit, for your own honor and glory, you would bring repentance into the heart of that person. Lord, there are times when we confront or when we try to encourage someone to do what is right, and it's like we're speaking to a stone wall, a wall with no ears. But Father, we know that you are a good God and you're a gracious God and that you have the power to provide repentance in situations like this. So, Lord, I would pray that you would bring repentance to our church when we engage in these sort of processes. Lord, we pray that for for our church today, and we will pray it in an ongoing fashion. Lord, we want to represent Christ and his purity and his integrity in our world. But we know, Lord, that the flesh still remains. And then finally, Lord, I'd pray that you would give to our church courage the moral courage to make the decisions that we sometimes will need to make. To start off, Lord, with being willing to go to the person. 
to talk about their sin, to encourage them, to admonish them. And perhaps, Lord, even at the end of the process, sometimes to remove them so that their spirit will be delivered in the day of the Lord, so that they'll be restored, and so that the integrity of your church would remain. We thank you, Lord, for this. Pray that you would do this for your honor and your glory. We beseech you this morning that you would do that for Colonial Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.